Well, amen. I said this to the first service this morning, that I believe that our music ministry believes that Jesus is alive, don't you? <clears throat> well, praise the Lord. Well, welcome this morning. I'm grateful that each one is here today. I'm thankful for our guests who've chosen to be here with us. Thank you for choosing to be here today, and we would love to tell you more things about our church, its ministries, how we can connect with you and being blessing to you. And so when you leave the room today, if you would stop off at our welcome desk and let one of our um, guest services team members just talk with you for a few moments, give you a free gift for being here today, and then get some information from you to uh, help us be able to minister to you better. Thank you for being here. Two quick things before I pray and we dig into the Word and continue our worship uh, through the Word today. Uh, first, I want to just kind of reiterate what Matt said a moment ago, and that is we do need people uh, to be here at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night. So just to put a, like an alarm in your phone to go off at a certain time, be here at 7 o'clock. We would love for you to, uh, to help us uh, with that and setting up our tables and chairs for uh, next, week, next week's event. We're planning on having one service next week. And that's a challenge for us sometimes. We have to put out some extra chairs and this sort of thing to be able to do that. We want to have that one service, 1030, no connect groups, children's ministries from four years and down. Everybody else comes to big church. And then we'll have that time of worship. And then we'll go and have a, a meal together uh, here on campus. And so our uh, hostess ministry team has been hard at work at that. So here's what they've asked me to tell you. If every family would bring enough food to feed your family, a meat, a vegetable, a casserole, a, a dessert for your, your family and more, if you will do that, and then if you're a single person, uh, just bring one dish. It could be um, a dessert, it could be a salad, it could be a casserole. Uh, you, you just bring one thing, and then we're going to uh, ask that you would bring that before the 1030 service to the fellowship hall kitchen area and one of the team members will get that and, and place that out. And then we'll come and we'll have a great time of worship together and then we'll dismiss to go eat together. We're gonna to dismiss in shifts next week. Our senior adults will go first. So they'll be dismissed first to go down, go through the line, get settled. Then young families with children, especially in children's ministry, we'll let you all go. And then my age group will back clean up. What we'll do is get the leftovers. But there will be plenty of food uh, if we just uh, do what we're asking to do. And so I would I'd greatly enjoy that. Also, there's going to be inflatables for children. So there'll be slides and all that type, that type of thing outside the fellowship hall uh, next Sunday as well. So we're looking forward to that time together next week. A second thing I want to say to you before we pray is that on the 29th of this month, our women's ministry, Women of the Word, will be uh, meeting together from 10 to 12 on that Saturday, a time of food, time of fellowship, time of being together to edify one another. And then Dr. Chantel Oni will be here to, to bring the Word to our women. She is a dear friend of our family, her and her husband, uh, and she is on faculty at the Baptist College of Florida, her husband. Uh, pastors outside of Atlanta, just a great family. Many of you in this church family know them too. James has preached here for me before. And so she's going to bring an incredible word that's going to encourage our women. So you do not, ladies, want to miss that. You can sign up out at the welcome desk. You can go online and register. But please go ahead and do that uh, so that we'll know how much food uh, to get. And, uh, and that's going to be a great time together. Well, let's pray together. And we're going to dig in the word for a few minutes this Easter morning. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, how thankful I am to be here today. Lord, I love you, and I need you, 
And I thank you for giving power to deliver your word in the first service. I give all glory and thanks to you. And I ask you now to empower me to once again deliver faithfully the word of God. I am not here to impress anyone, nor am I here to be intimidated by anyone. I desire to please you. And I pray you'll give me clarity of mind, clarity of speech. I pray to speak with compassion, conciseness and clarity and conviction. I ask you to allow me to speak with authority and power. Help me to be accurate with your word. I pray you'll captivate our attention, remove distractions, and speak to each person here. Father, I pray to glorify you. I pray to exalt Christ. For it's in his name I ask this. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, if you have your Bible. For those of you who are our guest, for the past several weeks we've been studying in the book of Hebrews. We're doing a, a study of this book. And, and, and so the passage for today is a great text for Easter Sunday. And so I, uh, I just felt this is what we need to talk about on Easter Sunday. And so I want to speak to you on this subject, the captain of our salvation. Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation, this text that we're looking at today says. Now, that word that's translated in the New King James, captain, is the Greek word archegos. It's a word that has a wide variety of use. It can mean leader or pioneer. Uh, it's used to describe a hero that a city is named for, and he becomes the guardian of that city. It has a military connotation to it. It speaks of a military leader that leads his forces and blazes a trail ahead of them. This term is used three other times in the New Testament. One other time in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12 and verse 2, where the Word of God says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That word author there is the same word, archegos, and there it's used to mean originator or initiator. The captain of our salvation leads his people out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom. The Bible is clear that Jesus is the way that people experience deliverance from sin and death and receive eternal life. He is the way in which a person can be made right with God and, and actually in the future return to God's original purpose for us that was lost when the first human beings rebelled and they sinned against God in the Garden of Eden. The Bible says, the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaking it, said this of himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me in John chapter 4 and verse 6. The Lord's apostles picked up that same message, and that's exactly what they preached to the world. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 records that. When the Word of God says, nor is there salvation in any other... For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That brings us to a question. Why do we need to be saved? Well, let me answer that. There is one true God. He has always existed. He was not created. He did not just suddenly appear. He's always existed. Now, that's difficult for us to understand because we don't have a frame of reference for that. We are bound by space and time. We have a beginning, and we know that there's an end coming 
for us. And it's difficult to understand a being that is eternal, but that is exactly how God reveals himself to be. But not only that, he's not only one, but he's also three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's the triune God. That's another difficulty that human beings wrestle with because once again, we have no frame of reference for such a being. But again, that's exactly how God has revealed himself to be in special revelation, which is Holy Scripture. At a point in time, the one true God made the universe that we are in. He made human beings in his own image. From the dust of the earth, he created the first man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And in another supernatural act, he put him to sleep, took a rib from his side, and supernaturally made his companion Eve. He gave them instruction as to how they could glorify him and show their love for him through obedience. So he gave them a clear command. They failed. They sinned. And because of that, all of their descendants, that includes every human being that's ever existed, if those human beings are unredeemed, those individuals are separated out of communion with God, alienated from God, and away from the original purpose that God has for us. Sin's effect has tainted all of creation. And without God's intervention, everything would be hopelessly lost and all human beings would die in their sin and face an eternity of righteous punishment for their sin against God. But God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, the Word of God says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God intervened. God intervened to deliver, to provide hope, to return those who believe to right standing with God and then to allow them to be able to fulfill their original purpose. And today's text describes how he did that. He sent the captain of our salvation. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Read with me, please. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, 
that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are being tempted. It is a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth lived. It is a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth was put to death. He was executed by the Romans on a cross. He was crucified. It is also a fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The evidence for his resurrection is undeniable. If you choose to deny that, then you deny tremendous evidence and you also presuppose that there's no such thing as the supernatural. And to do that means that you deny God himself who is outside the natural. He came to save us. What God did for people is nothing short of breathtaking and awe-inspiring because he came to save us. In chapter 1, the Word of God makes clear that Jesus Christ is God. He's God the Son. Jesus' deity is emphasized strongly in chapter 1. Just read the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1, and you will find seven things about Jesus Christ that, that describe God. So it speaks of the fact that He is deity. Then in chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews, as the Spirit of God inspires him, begins to write about Jesus' humanity. He had to be both human and God to be our deliverer of the human race, to rescue us from our position of spiritual death. Now listen, God is holy. God has to do all things right. And what that means is He has to punish sin. It's right to punish sin. Any community or society that allows for the breaking of laws and does not punish for breaking a law is called an unjust society. God is holy, and He must punish sin. And all human beings have sinned. And without some type of deliverance, and the punishment of sin is exacted upon the human race, it would be absolutely devastating for all of, the, for all of us. To be delivered, there would have to be a substitute. And that substitute would have to be of the human race to be that one who stands in for the human race, but that human being would have to be perfect. And there are no perfect human beings. I do know some people who think they are, but I'm telling you, they are not. Only God is perfect. And therefore, this substitute not only has to be a human being, but has to also be God. And that's what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the incarnation. And only God could be perfect and satisfy His own wrath by becoming our human substitute. In verse 10, the Word of God says this, for it was fitting for Him. That word fitting means appropriate or necessary. It was fitting for Him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. What that's saying there is that all things were made for God. <laughs> He's the source of all things. So it speaks of His sovereignty. 
And so his plan was in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation, the initiator of their salvation, the author, the author of their salvation, be made perfect through sufferings. Now, what is sufferings? What does that, what does that mean? It speaks of the human experience because every human being experiences suffering. We go through suffering because of the curse of sin. We're constantly tempted into sin. Unredeemed human beings are constantly falling into sin, as are redeemed human beings uh, even. But he was to be made perfect through suffering. Now, was there something morally lacking in Jesus? Of course not. This word perfect here means to be fully qualified. So for him to be fully qualified to be our substitute, our, the captain of our salvation, he would have to live out the human experience with perfection. He would fulfill all the law of God. He would obey God the Father. He would be completely surrendered to the Father and be obedient. And that's exactly what happened. The Word of God says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 that he was tempted in all points, yet without sin. And so his plan was, that is God's, that in the person of his Son, he would become human, adding humanity to his deity to suffer on behalf of the human race. Now, in these verses, we see the humanity of Jesus emphasized. Verse 10, this idea of suffering, God can't suffer, so he had to become human to suffer. He identifies, verse 11, with those who are being sanctified. He says he's of them. In verse 12 and 13, there are two Old Testament quotations, one from Psalm 22, 22, another from Isaiah 8, 17 and 18, that describes the humanity of Jesus. In verse 14, he's said to have the same flesh that we have. Sometimes we argue about what Jesus would look like. Would he, would he have dark hair, dark eyes, olive skin? Probably because of where he was from. But that's not the point. The point is he had human flesh. And every one of us, no matter who we are, if we got black hair or brown hair or blue eyes or, or, or brown eyes or, or whatever tone we are, what we all know is this, we share human flesh. We're all brothers and sisters. We all have descended from Adam and Eve. And the Lord Jesus Christ took that flesh upon himself to suffer, die, and rise for us. Verse 14 says he died. God cannot die. So he had to become human to die. Now, it's hard for me to imagine this kind of love, the kind of love it takes for God to do what he did. But the incarnation of Christ, his becoming man and dwelling among us and living and dying and rising is the greatest demonstration of love ever. And it provides for us what is needed for the rescue. There are four things in this text that talks about what this incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has provided for those who are redeemed. Number one, he saves those who believe, verse 10 and 11. He's the captain of our salvation. That salvation speaks of rescue. There's two things specifically he says in those two verses that happens for those who are redeemed. Number one, he makes us sons and daughters of God. Notice in verse 10, bringing many sons to glory. That's sons and daughters he brings to glory. The many is interesting. It helps us understand uh, something about salvation. It's only those who believe that are saved. 
His sacrifice is sufficient for all, but only those who believe have that sacrifice applied to their account and become the sons and daughters of God. That is, they are adopted into the family of God with all the rights and privileges of children. They will be, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, joint heirs with Jesus. The Word of God says one day in the future kingdom to come, we, those who are redeemed, will reign with Christ, returning to our original purpose that was lost in the Garden of Eden. He makes us His sons and daughters. But a second thing He does is He sanctifies, verse 11 talks about. That word sanctify there means to set apart or to make holy. And there are two things to say about that. One thing is this. When He saves us, we become positionally holy. What does that mean? We're taken out of the kingdom of darkness. We're taken out of enslavement to sin. And we're set apart for God. We're His. And because of what happens when we are saved, we're forgiven of all of our sins. And the very righteous life that Christ lived on this earth is also attributed to us when we are converted. His active and passive obedience, it's called, is attributed to us so that before God in Christ, we are holy. But then also there's another aspect to, to this. It's what we call sanctification. It's a progressive holiness. It means we keep growing in holiness. God did not save us and put us positionally holy before him to continue to live in sin. That's not what happens when you're converted. You become a new creation and you are then to pursue holiness. What that means is you learn the word of God. You will learn what is wrong. You will learn what sin is and you will go to war against sin in your life and the power of the spirit will enable you to overcome that sin. You will learn from the Word of God what is right, what right conduct is. And by the Spirit of God, you will begin to implement that into your life as you submit yourself to the Lord to obey Him. And you will progressively become more and more like Jesus. You pursue holiness. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 even tells us, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If that is absent in a person's life, it is, it is evidence they will not see the Lord because it's evidence they are not saved. They are not redeemed. He enables us to pursue holiness and live a holy life by His power to glorify Him. So the first thing we see is that He saves those who believe. Chapter 5, verse 9 makes that very clear to us. He provides salvation for those who obey, that is, who obey the gospel. Then secondly, here's what else he does. His incarnation, his work of life, death, and resurrection also destroys our enemies. Verse 14 and 15. Two enemies are mentioned, the devil and death. First, the devil. Now, let me just tell you something about the devil in case you don't know this. He hates you. He hates you because you're made in the image of God. And he will do everything he possibly can to initiate sin in your life. That's what he does. He desires to destroy you. He is not your friend. 
He does not want what's best for you. The Lord Jesus in John chapter 10 and verse 10 said this about him. The thief has not come but to steal, kill, and destroy. He devours, he devastates, he deceives. He does everything he possibly can to keep people from understanding and responding to the only way they can be rescued from the state that they are in. And in this text today, the Lord Jesus, his work is said to destroy the devil who had the power of death. Now, how did the devil have power of death? Because human beings willfully sinned, and God assigns the punishment for sin, that's death. And God is sovereign. He is the one who is over life and death. He's the giver of life. He is the one who appoints death. So how is it the devil is said to have had power over death? It's because he was guilty of the first sin, and he was the initiator of the first human sin. He was the tempter. Let's go back in time for a little bit to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, Eve, who understood that God had given a clear command, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was a command given because when we deny self to obey God, it is the way in which we glorify Him. Obedience glorifies Him. But not only that, that's the way we love Him. We see that in the Word of God. Jesus said uh, that we love Him by obeying Him. So she understood the command. And so Satan tempted her one day and said, did God really say that? That's how He works, don't you know? We're reading the Bible and we say, ah. we hear some preaching, ah, is that really what God says? I mean, if it's clear, now listen, we ought, to, we ought to test the Scriptures to make sure what we're hearing and we're understanding things correctly, but how, how much plainer can you get? Don't eat. How, how much plainer do you get? So he, he's, he's tempting. Did God really say that? Oh, yeah, here's what he said. You will not die. He comes back with absolute Denial of what God said. Here, here's, here's the problem with God now, he's saying. He's trying to rob you of something. You're, you're not going to be able to experience something if you follow his commands. He knows if you do this, you're going to be like him. <laughs> oh, I've got your best interest in mind. You better listen to me. You're going to miss out on so much if you follow Jesus. Does that sound familiar to anybody in here? He's still using the same tactics. They work. But what the Word of God teaches us here is this power that Satan has and the power that he has over the unredeemed world is this now. We're enslaved to sin and he is constantly deceiving and working and drawing people away from the truth of God because he desires for them to be destroyed as he will be destroyed. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says this, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You see what's happening there? The unredeemed. He's describing the unredeemed state of the Ephesians before they were saved. And he's saying to them, 
They're under the influence of the world system, the course of this world. The Bible lets us know that the enemy has sway over the world. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. Uh, the, 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 the spirit of disobedience, that, that's the enemy, that's Satan. He's working in people's lives to deceive. But what the Word of God's telling us here is this. When, when a person is redeemed, the work of the cross of Jesus Christ disarms and defeats the enemy's influence over our lives. Freeze us from it. Here's a good verse for you to write down. Colossians 2, well, two verses, 14 and 15. Particularly verse 15, it talks about how that he disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That speaks of the work he did on the cross. So he frees us from that enslavement to the enemy's influence. The second thing he does is he also frees us from the fear of death. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. All have sinned, and death has come to all. Anybody know who Barbara Walters is? There's a generation gap in this service. So Barbara Walters was a... Uh, Barbara Walters was sort of a reporter, you know, um, had, had, a, had a show that she would interview people. And, and Larry King, you know who Larry King is? He was the same, same thing. So one time Barbara Walters is interviewing Larry King, and she's asking him all these questions. And the question that she asked was, what do you fear? And his immediate response was death. She went on to ask him more questions. you believe in God? And she, she said, I don't know. I'm agnostic. I just don't know. And then he went on to say in that interview on down, he said, basically this, I fear death because I don't know what will happen after death. I've seen a lot of people over the years have a fear of death because that's, that's our ultimate enemy as human beings, don't you think? In the, in the day we're in, we're so busy running here and there that what troubles me most is not many people are thinking about what happens after they die. We're distracted by the enemy. But the Word of God teaches us that because Jesus lived and died and rose again, He removes the power of sin and He removes death's victory over us and gives us life when we're saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 through 23 says this, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. I have known people who, because death was imminent, they were incredibly fearful about what was to come. I have known some people so blind to their state, they had no idea of the horror they were about to face. I remember many years ago when my maternal grandmother died, we called her Mama. When Mama died, she was at the funeral home, and you had these different parlors in the funeral home in our hometown. And the bodies are in there and families gather. And our tradition, you, you may have a two-day visitation. The family gets there at 9 o'clock in the morning, stay there at 9 o'clock at night. 
for two days before the funeral sometimes. That's just a tradition. The people come by, sit down, talk, and this kind of thing. Well, I just happened to notice in this parlor next door, there's nobody in there. There's just the body in there. And I'm kind of curious. I just walk in there and take a look at him. And on his face is a grimace, his death face. You ever heard him talk about a death face? And, and so it, his death face was an incredible, horrific grimace. So I find out this guy died in prison. Now, people can get saved in prison. I don't know the state of this person, but here's what, and I don't know this for sure, but I, I get to thinking if this, maybe this guy was getting a little bit of a glimpse as he was dying of where he was headed. Hence, the death face. I have known believers many over the years that I've sat by their bedsides as the last fleeting moments of life come to a close. And there's such peace. They do not fear because they know at that moment when there is a call from home, <laughs> they are escorted gloriously in the presence of the Lord. It's what happens to those of us who were saved. And then one day we come back with him and our bodies are raised and reunited with our spirits and we're given a glorified body like the Lord's to live in forever. All made possible because of what Jesus did. A third thing we see that was accomplished is this. He became our high priest and propitiation, verse 16 and 17. Now, in verse 16, the Scripture says he doesn't give aid to angels, but he does to the seed of Abraham. That really ultimately speaks of all those who will come to know Christ. He gives aid to them. And then verse 17 begins to really explain how that happens. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of of the people. He became the high priest, the mediator between God and people. Now, these uh, people that were being written to originally, the Hebrews, they were, they were ethnic Jews who had come to Christ. They would have understood this high priest uh, language very quickly, and they would have understood that one time a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with a, with a sacrifice to offer for the sins of all the people of the nation of Israel. So they, they would have recognized that. And here Jesus is said to be merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What is propitiation? Propitiation is a big theological word, but it's a word that basically means this, satisfaction of God's justice satisfaction of God's justice. He took the punishment on our behalf on the cross. He satisfied God's wrath toward our sin in Himself on the cross so that those who are joined to Him in faith are forgiven and made righteous before God. Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26 speaks of this. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, and when Jesus ascended to the Father to be at the right hand of the majesty on high, He presents Himself as the ultimate sacrifice 
for the sin of the world. The final thing we see in this text that was accomplished through the incarnation is He became our help. Verse 18. Verse 18 says, For in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, He is able to aid those who are being tempted. Jesus experienced what we experience. He hungered, He thirst, experienced pain and betrayal and hurt. He suffered. The Word of God teaches us. Because He suffered, He knows how to help us in our struggle and in our suffering. And we're taught to depend on Him. Praise be to the Savior who suffered in temptation. You see that? You notice that in the text? The Bible says God cannot be tempted. So when God the Son became human, He experienced for the first time temptation. And it's described as suffering. But He, with absolute perfection and obedience, followed the law of God to a T, never sinned, so that He would be our sacrifice and our help each day. There is no struggle that we have. He cannot give us the power to obey Him in the midst of. He did not sin, but He paid the price for our sin. He did not experience the consequences to His personal sin because He didn't sin. But He experienced the ultimate consequence for our sin, the wrath of God. And so when we're joined to Christ in faith, guess what? We will never experience the ultimate consequence of sin because He satisfied it for us. The first Adam was made from the dust of the earth, made in the image of God. Adam was to commune with God. He was to rule over the earth, but he sinned and he lost his privilege. And instead of ruling over the earth, he would die and actually return to the earth. The earth that he was to struggle with while he was alive would be hard for him. He would have to, by the sweat of his brow, break up the soil of the earth to make it produce something that's usable because left to itself, Genesis 3 says it will produce thorns. Eve, because of her sin, would have to experience the pain and suffering of childbirth. But God came to earth and a cross was set in the earth. And Jesus was hung on that cross and a crown of thorns placed on his head. That's interesting to me since the earth produced in its cursed state thorns. He suffered severe pain, absorbed the wrath of God so there could be spiritual children born. <laughs> Folks could be born again. He died and was placed in the earth. And on the third day, he came up out of the earth. And after a while, he ascended from the earth to heaven with a promise. One day, he's coming back to earth. And he's going to eventually make a new heaven and earth. And those of us who have been redeemed by him 
are joint heirs with him, and we will reign with Christ in the new heaven and new earth, all because of what the captain of our salvation did. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. Down at the cross where my Savior died. Down where for cleansing from sin I cried. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. I have to ask you this. Has his blood been applied to your heart? If it has, you should rejoice today. And you should be reminded that this life should be lived for the one who redeemed us and not ourselves. And if we have gotten off track, today's the day to repent of that and begin following Jesus again wholeheartedly so that this time next year we, we look more like Jesus than we do right now. And for some in this room, the blood of Christ has not been applied to your heart, but it can be today. Are you willing to admit it? Are you willing to admit your sin? Are you willing to believe what Jesus said about himself that he did come and live a sinless life and die on a cross and he satisfied the just wrath of God? He rose from the dead. Will you turn from your sin today and receive him as your Lord and Savior? He'll change your life. He will defeat Satan's power over you. He will remove your fear of death. He will minister deeply to your heart each day. He will help you. He will strengthen you until you faithfully finish the race here on this earth and he comes to get you. We're going to stand to sing in just a moment and I'm going to ask if God's speaking to you about that. You've never received Christ and you leave your seat and you come to me right here and you say to me, I'm, I'm in need of Jesus today to be my Savior. And we're going to talk with you and pray with you. You may say, I'm not, I am not going to get out of my seat. I'm not walking up there. I'm terrified of that. Listen, you just surrender. God will give you the grace to make it down here to me, and we'll talk about this. The altar's open today for us as believers. You come today and do some talking with the Lord about your life right now. Put him back where he belongs, and that's completely first in your life. The captain of your salvation should be on the throne of your life. Some might need to join the church today, and you just come and let me know that, and we'll talk with you about that. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and then let's obey the Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you for
speaking through your word. I believe, Lord God, you've spoken to people. I believe you're drawing people, and I pray for there to be a great surrender of life to you today. I pray for Christians. Lord, I pray you work in us. I pray you'll expose the sin that's there, things we've allowed to creep in, and lifestyle that we're living that separates us from deep fellowship with you. And I pray today we confess that and return to following you. Lord, I pray, Father, that we're strengthened in the faith and maybe some are weary in their walk with you today, but you've encouraged them. Lord, let us be honoring to you by the way we live. Thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, now please work in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, please.